Hi, everyone. Just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about a minute. Uh, we're just waiting for people to get in and get settled. Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. We're still waiting for people to get in and get settled. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, How to Prevent the Most Common ASCOM Violations, an in-depth look at OSHA citations, sponsored by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's event. Thank you for joining us, and before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the Council of the Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a Q&A with our speakers. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and press the send button. We welcome your question at any time during this presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We might not get to every question, but the good news is that unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events, or you may also receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Mishka Benz and Rachel Krubsack. Mishka joined J.J. Keller this year as an advisor on the Environmental Health and Safety Publishing Team. With eight years of experience in the environmental compliance field, she specializes in the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, and Spill Prevention Plans. Mishka has significant experience in project management, determining permitting mechanisms, and coordinating with regulatory agencies. Rachel contributes to a variety of J.J. Keller's workplace and environmental safety-related products and services. She writes a monthly newsletter on OSHA safety training, answers questions from subscribers, and provides content for other publications, including the Safety Management Suite. Rachel's topics of expertise include HASCOM, hearing con conservation, training requirements, bloodborne pathogens, and emergency action plans. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Rachel, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Okay, thank you, Alan. Today's webcast is sponsored by J.J. Keller's Chemical Management Service. With this service, JJ, let J.J. Keller experts manage your chemicals for you. By combining the advisory support of our compliance specialists with our online portal, you get an easier way to manage your chemical inventory and HASCOM compliance. This service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HASCOM program. On behalf of the JJ Keller HASCOM Chemical Management Service, welcome to today's webcast. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the most common hazard communication or HASCOM violations OSHA cites for, including the written HASCOM program, training and information requirements, safety data sheets, and labels. To help you stay in compliance, we'll go over what's required for each of these elements. But first, we'd like to know a little bit more about you and why you're joining us today. What issues do you struggle with? What are your biggest challenges with HASCOM? you can choose more than one answer from the poll. Maybe this is keeping track of chemicals, maintaining SDSs, understanding the HASCOM requirements, proper labeling, or maybe there's something else related to HASCOM. During today's webcast, we'll provide a foundation to begin addressing your workplace EHS issues. Consider your unique workplace circumstances while applying our guidance and determining its applicability. I hope we can help address your compliance issues today and provide some answers.
Okay, let's taking a look at our poll results. It looks like keeping track of chemicals is the biggest challenge, as well as understanding the requirements. And this is followed with a tie with maintaining SDSs at proper labeling and other coming in at about 18%. So thanks everybody for participating in that poll. And with that, let's delve into what, what the violations are and how we can help you comply. So hazard communication is always found in OSHA's top 10 list of most frequently cited serious violations. These are the numbers from 2021, where three of the top 10 serious violations were related to HAZCOM. You can see that missing or inadequate HAZCOM written program was the number three serious violation for general industry at 568 citations. Next, we can see that missing or inadequate measures to provide hazard information to employees or provide proper training at 515 citations. And finally, the failure to make SDSs readily available came in at 211 violations. So this shows that there are many areas in HAZCOM where OSHA will take a look at your program for compliance. Breaking it out a little further, here's OSHA's list of top serious violations covering only 1910 subpart Z, which is sections 1910-1000 through 1910.1450. And HASCOM, of course, is 1910.1200. So here we see the top three from the last slide, plus the addition of not having an SDS available for each hazardous chemical, and for in-house labels, not providing both the product identifier and general hazard information on the label. Recently, an employer in South Dakota faced penalties of over $120,000 after an employee was asphyxiated while handling liquid nitrogen. OSHA found several violations of the HAZCOM standard, including lack of a written hazard communication program and chemical inventory, unlabeled containers of hazardous chemicals, no safety data sheets, and lack of training on chemicals, their hazards, and protective measures. And as we mentioned, these are all areas where OSHA commonly finds violations in the HAZCOM standard. So before we delve into violations, let's start with an overview of the HAZCOM standard. Employers who have hazardous chemicals in their workplaces are required to implement a haz hazard communication program that includes labels on containers of hazardous chemicals, safety data sheets, and training for workers. Employers also must describe in a written program how they will meet the requirements of the standard in each of these areas. HASCOM applies to general industry, shipyard, marine terminals, longshoring, and construction. Any employer with one employee who's exposed to one hazardous chemical is covered. HASCOM covers any chemical which is known to be present in the workplace in such a manner that employees may be exposed under normal conditions of use or in a foreseeable emergency. And most chemicals used in the workplace do have some hazard potential and thus will be covered by the rule. So let's take a quick look at a few definitions, which will help clarify what's covered under the standard. In order to understand HAZCOM and its requirements, you need to first understand what a hazardous chemical is. This is defined as any chemical which is classified as a physical hazard or a health hazard, a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or a hazard not otherwise classified. Mishka? All right, thank you, Rachel. So the terms health hazard and physical hazard are defined at 1910-1200C. A health hazard or physical hazard is classified as posing one of the hazardous effects listed in their respective columns on the slide. Hazard refers to an inherent property of a substance that's capable of causing an adverse effect. Chemical exposure can cause or contribute to many serious adverse health effects, you know, such as cancer, sterility, heart disease, lung damage, and burns. Some chemicals are also physical hazards and have the potential to cause fires, explosions, and other dangerous incidents. A hazardous chemical may also be classified as a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or hazard not otherwise classified, known as HNOCs. These terms are, are defined in HASCOM with the exception of combustible dust, um, and that definition comes from an OSHA directive, CPL 03-00-008.
with some exceptions, if your employees are exposed to hazardous chemicals, you're covered under HASCOM. This is the first of two slides that contain exemptions. So some of these hazardous substances are regulated by other agencies, so OSHA has exempted them from coverage by HASCOM. Let's take a closer look at articles exempted by OSHA. So the standard defines article as a manufactured item other than a fluid or particle which one is formed into a specific shape or design during manufacture, two has end use functions dependent in whole or in part upon its shape or design during end use, and three does not release more than very small quantities of a hazardous chemical or pose a physical hazard or health risk to employees under normal conditions of use. It's sometimes difficult to determine what is considered normal conditions of use though, right? So let's take, for example, you may have a manufactured item that meets the definition of an article, but if it's burned, it produces a hazardous byproduct. The question then becomes, is burning normal use for that product? If burning occurs during its normal use and more than trace amounts of a hazardous byproduct are produced, then it cannot be exempted as an article. Although normal use does not include incidental exposure. If a hazardous chemical can be expected to be released only when the item is repaired, then that is not considered part of its normal condition of use. The item would be considered an article under HASCOM and thus exempted. Stainless steel tables, vinyl upholstery and tires are some examples. So basically if the product will be processed in some way after leaving the manufacturing site, such as being heated, welded, glued or sawed, and a hazardous chemical could be emitted, it probably won't qualify for the article exemption. So let's talk about a couple other chemical exemptions. We often get questions about consumer products. HASCOM does not cover consumer products such as kitchen cleanser when the products are used in the workplace in such a way that the duration and frequency of use is not greater than what the typical consumer would experience. However, this exemption is based on how it's actually used in the workplace rather than the chemical manufacturer's intended use of the product. So for example, if an employee uses kitchen cleanser to clean the sink in the break room uh, twice a week, say. That would be considered normal consumer exposure. However, if that employee cleans all of the sinks in all of the building's break rooms every day, that now exceeds normal consumer exposure and the provisions of HASCOM would apply. Um, certain drugs are also exempt. You don't have to worry about HASCOM for items in first aid cabinets. Drugs intended for personal consumption by employees while in the workplace are exempted. Okay, thank you, Mishka. Mm -hmm. So now that we've gone over the basics, let's take a closer look at the first violation, missing or inadequate written HASCOM program. Employers who have hazardous chemicals in the workplace must develop, implement, and maintain a HASCOM program. This requirement applies whether the employer generates the hazard or the hazard is generated by other employers. The written HASCOM program requirement does not apply to laboratories or operations where employees handle only sealed containers of hazardous chemicals, such as in warehouses or retail sales. However, these employers do have other responsibilities under the standard including ensuring labels on incoming containers of hazardous chemicals are not removed or defaced, maintaining incoming SDSs, and training employees to the extent necessary to protect them in the event of a spill or leak of a hazardous chemical from a sealed container. And these responsibilities are outlined at 1910.1200, paragraphs B3 and B4. So what is the written program? This program does not need to be lengthy or complicated. It's basically a written record of what you and your company, what your company has done and will do to comply with HASCOM. You may maintain the program either on paper or in electronic format, as long as employees have access to it upon request. If your employee's job assignment requires travel between various geographical locations, you may keep the written program at the primary work location. 
And finally, the written program must be available upon request to not just your employees, but also their designated representatives and any OSHA officials. The written program must describe how you'll meet the requirements for labels and other forms of warning, SDSs, and employee information and training. It also must include a list of the hazardous chemicals known to be present in the workplace using a product identifier that's referenced on the appropriate SDS. And we'll talk more about this requirement in a little while. The program must describe the methods the employer will use to inform employees of the hazards of non-routine tasks. So for example, the cleaning of reactor vessels and the hazards associated with chemicals contained in unlabeled pipes in their work areas. And finally, where there's more than one employer operating on a site and employees may be exposed to the chemicals used by each employer, the program then must describe sharing SDSs, any needed precautionary measures, and a description of the on-site labeling system. To help keep up with your written program requirements, consider appointing a coordinator to write or oversee the program. The coordinator will have overall responsibility for developing the chemical inventory, organizing the SDSs, setting up employee training, updating files and chemicals present in the workplace, and processing requests for information from employees and OSHA. The coordinator should know how the program was implemented through careful documentation and be able to answer questions from OSHA. The person designated for overall program coordination should then identify staff to be responsible for particular activities such as training. So now let's take a closer look at the chemical inventory or list, which is part of that written HASCOM program. The inventory must include all chemicals present in the workplace, including those that are stored or not in use. They can be for the entire facility or for individual work areas. A common question we get is what information needs to be on the chemical list. OSHA only requires a product identifier, such as the common name, that aligns with the label and the SDS. You don't have to indicate the hazards of the chemicals on your list, but it can be helpful as a training tool to give employees an overview of the hazards in their area. OSHA doesn't specify a frequency for updating your list, but they do expect you to keep it current. You may want to review the list on a regular schedule, which should be more frequent if your chemicals change frequently or could be done annually if you're a smaller location whose chemicals stay relatively the same. All right, thank you, Rachel. So how do you go about creating this inventory? So start by performing a department by department audit and look for chemicals that are present. You know, include things like cleaning supplies, grounds maintenance uh, chemicals, vendor samples being used on a trial basis, as well as all chemicals used in daily operations. Be sure to check in all cabinets, closets, and other storage areas. And ask employees, ask your employees, what do they use and where is it stored? And just to get you thinking, you know, up on our slide, here's a partial list of the types of regulated substances that you may have in your workplace that would need to be included in the inventory. You know, sometimes people think of chemicals as being only liquids in containers. However, HASCOM covers chemicals in all physical forms. That's your liquids, solids, gases, vapors, fumes, and mists, whether they're contained or not. The hazardous nature of the chemical and the potential for exposure are the factors that determine whether a chemical is covered by the standard. Um, and so in addition to spotting chemicals in containers and pipes, think about chemicals that are generated during work operations. For example, welding fumes, dust, and exhaust. These are all sources of chemical exposures. Uh, purchasing records can also be very helpful. Prior to purchasing chemicals, review the hazards of the chemicals and evaluate if less hazardous chemicals can be purchased instead. While compiling your inventory, consider listing the substances separately by department. You'll find that it makes it easier to conduct employee training to know which chemicals are used in which department. All right, um, so we're gonna, right before we do this poll, today's webcast, it's sponsored by the JJ Keller Chemical Management Service. With this new service, you can get help from JJ Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and SDS library, ensure proper labeling and compliance. We can even review and update your written hazard communication program 
and provide regular reporting and communication on your HASCOM program performance. Um, and if you'd like more information on the JJ Keller Chemical Management Service, let us know by selecting your interests on the poll. And as a thank you, we'll email you a copy of our new compliance brief, the top seven HASCOM violations. All right, and while we allow everyone to uh, finish taking the poll, let's take a customer question here. Um, I have one that's, we have one here that's leading up to some more information. So I think this is a perfect timing. Let's see, do we have to provide HASCOM training if we have fewer than 10 employees? And the answer is yes, training is required for all employees with potential exposure to hazardous chemicals in their work area. And we're actually about to go over this like I mentioned in the next couple of slides. All right, and so thank you everyone for providing the results um, for the poll. All right, so now violation number two and it's training employees, let's take a look at the second most cited HASCOM violation, the requirement to inform and train employees. As I just mentioned, employers must train all employees who have potential exposure to hazardous chemicals before they are initially assigned to those jobs. Additional training has to be done whenever a new physical or health hazard is introduced into the work area. Exposure means that an employee is subjected to a hazardous chemical in the course of employment through inhalation, ingestion, skin contact, or absorption, and includes accidental or possible exposure. So if you have some employees who are occasionally in an area where chemicals are stored or used, and you're undecided whether they are exposed, include them in your training program. Um, however, those employees who encounter hazardous chemicals only in non-routine isolated instances would not have to receive training. Remember to include temporary employees in your training. Uh, staffing agencies and host employers are jointly responsible for ensuring that temporary employees are effectively trained. Staffing agencies can provide generic training while the host employer can provide site-specific chemical information. For contractors, the standard requires that the host and the contractor exchange information so each can train their own workers. All right, so first let's look at the information requirements. The standard requires employers to know the general requirements of HASCOM, where hazardous chemicals are located in their work areas, and that means operations where exposure may occur, and the location and availability of the written HASCOM program, chemical inventory, and safety data sheets. And in addition to providing this information to workers, they must be trained on the following. They must know how to detect hazardous chemicals in, an, in a work area. So for example, using monitoring devices, how hazards of the hazards of those chemicals, sorry, how employees can protect themselves and details of your written HASCOM program, including an explanation of labels and SDSs. Training may be done either by individual chemical or by categories of hazards, such as flammability or carcinogenity. If there are only a few chemicals in the workplace, then an employer may even choose to discuss each one individually. And um, back to you, Rachel. Okay, thank you. So if you have employees who do special non-routine tasks that may expose them to hazardous chemicals, such as doing a tank cleanout, you need to inform them about those chemicals hazards. You should also inform them about how to control exposure and what to do in an emergency. This also means evaluating the hazards of these tasks and providing appropriate controls, including protective equipment and any additional training as required. And finally, you need to inform employees of the hazards associated with chemicals contained in unlabeled pipes in their work areas. As far as trainers, OSHA doesn't specify who can present training to employees and no formal certification is required to do so. As the employer, you may determine who's qualified to do training based on their knowledge and experience. 
However, OSHA does expect that the trainer is able to present the information so that it's understandable to all employees and that it's specific to the hazards of that particular workplace. The trainer must be familiar with the requirements of HASCOM as they apply to the workplace, the hazardous chemicals in the workplace to which workers are potentially exposed, as well as the types of hazards they pose, the written HASCOM program implemented in the workplace, if applicable, and the protective measures being employed in the workplace. OSHA requires that effective training must be provided, which means that your training program must provide employees with the knowledge they need and that they can carry that knowledge into their daily jobs. You can provide information and training through whatever means are best for your employees. Although there will always have to be some site-specific training, any methods of presenting the material that meet the objectives can be used, such as classroom instruction or online learning. Keep in mind that the training must be conducted in a manner and language that employees can understand and they must be allowed the opportunity to ask questions. We talked earlier about required HASCOM training when a new chemical hazard is introduced. However, some employers want to know if they must offer refresher training at a given frequency like annually. No annual HASCOM training is a, well, it's a standard industry practice, however OSHA doesn't require it. Refresher training should be done if you notice employees are working unsafely or maybe they're not putting into practice what they learned. And you may not need to repeat your entire training program, but just address those specific topics. Mishka? Thanks, Rachel. Uh, so it's a highly encouraged practice to maintain training records. Although HASCOM does not require it, it may help monitor your own program to ensure that all workers are appropriately trained. Keeping records that document who was trained, when the training was conducted, and what was covered is also helpful to doc document that compliance with OSHA's training requirement in case of an inspection. During an inspection, OSHA will talk to workers to determine if they have received training and are knowledgeable regarding HASCOM. Compliance officers will ask your employees, you know, what chemicals they have in their work area and if they know their hazards. They'll also ask your employees if they know where to obtain substance-specific uh, substance information on labels and SDSs. OSHA doesn't expect that workers will be able to recall and recite all data provided about each hazardous chemical in the workplace. But keep in mind, what's most important is that they understand that they're exposed to hazardous chemicals, know how to read the labels and SDSs, and have a general understanding of what information is provided in these documents and how to access these tools. If the inspector detects a trend in employee responses that indicate um, you know, that training isn't being conducted or is ineffective, OSHA can issue a citation. And as we stated earlier, the two most common SDS uh, violations are failure to make SDSs readily accessible and failure to maintain an SDS for each hazardous chemical. So first, let's address the requirement to make the SDSs readily accessible. OSHA says that SDSs must be readily accessible to employees during each work shift when they are in their work area. Employees must know the location of the SDSs and there must be no barrier to employee access. So that means not having to ask a supervisor for an SDS, you know, not keeping the SDSs in a locked cabinet. Employers are not allowed to require employees to do an internet search for SDSs. However, they are allowed to be maintained on a company website or with an off-site web-based SDS provider. Employees, employers, I'm sorry, must ensure that there is a backup procedure or system in place in case the system is not functioning and that their employees are trained on how to access the SDSs, both on the computer and the backup system. In the event of a medical emergency, hard copy SDSs must be immediately available to medical personnel. Um, and, you know, SDSs can be kept in hard copy or electronic format. And to help ensure you have a complete set of SDSs, 
you know, consider keeping a master SDS file and check in each SDS, particularly noting the, rev the revision date. If an SDS is an update of a sheet, send out a copy to each department that uses a chemical so that they can update the departmental SDS file. If an SDS is for a new chemical, send copies to each department that will use it. Although you may no longer use a specific chemical in your facility, a different regulation under 29 CFR 1910.1020 says that you have to keep some record of employee exposure to a chemical. SDSs are exposure records. However, you do not need to retain paper or electronic copies of all SDSs as long as you have a record of employee exposure to the products that were used, such as the chemical identity, when it was used, and where it was used, and you retain that record for 30 years. And to you, Rachel. Okay, thank you. So now let's address the second most common SDS violation, maintaining an SDS for each hazardous chemical in your workplace. Distributors must ensure SDSs are provided to employers with their initial shipment and with the first shipment after an SDS is updated. If you don't receive an SDS with a shipment that has been labeled as a hazardous chemical, you must obtain one as soon as possible. Make a note of your request, and if you don't receive an SDS within 30 days, contact your local OSHA office and they'll request one on your behalf. If under normal conditions of use, employees do not open sealed containers of hazardous chemicals, such as in warehousing or retail sales, the distributor need only maintain the SDSs that are sent with incoming shipments. If an employee requests an SDS and it's not available, the distributor must contact the manufacturer and request one. So the primary difference here is that the warehouse or hardware store does not have to maintain a complete file of safety data sheets. This simplifies the paperwork for operations where hundreds of different chemicals pass through but are never opened or worked with. The SDS must be specific to the product and manufacturer, whether it's gasoline, paint, or any other type of hazardous chemical employees are exposed to. Regarding non-hazardous chemicals, you're not required or encouraged to maintain SDSs for them, even if the supplier provides a copy. And when it comes to consumer products, the need for an SDS depends on how the chemical is used in the workplace. If it's used in such a way that the duration and frequency of use, and therefore exposure, is not greater than what the typical consumer would experience, you don't need to maintain an SDS for it. This exemption is based, however, not upon the chemical manufacturer's intended use of the product, but upon how it actually is used in the workplace. OSHA says the employer is in the best position to make that determination. Toxic air emissions may be a byproduct of a process or procedure in a facility. Areas that often get overlooked involve potentially toxic chemicals produced from welding operations, gasoline-powered forklift vehicles, power tools with internal combustion motors, and commercial trucks at the loading dock. Employee exposure to any air emissions that are being created in the facility must be accounted for, and you may need to contact the supplier of your welding rods for help in tracking down the appropriate SDS. However, SDSs do not have to be provided for vehicles such as lift trucks, tractors, or automobiles, but SDSs are required for the gasoline and other fuels used by the vehicles. Employees should be aware of the potential for exposure to carbon monoxide and associated physical hazards of petroleum fuel products, such as fire and explosion. As we mentioned earlier, the two most common label-related citations are failure to provide complete information on labels of shipped containers and failure to include product identifier or general hazard information on in-house labels. So first, let's take a look at the requirements for shipped containers. Labels on shipped containers must have the six elements shown on the slide. The product identifier is how the hazardous chemical is identified, and this must match what's on the label and in section one of the SDS. The labeling element most cited by OSHA is the product identifier, and this could mean the employer is missing the product identifier altogether or may have the correct information displayed. The signal word is either danger or warning. Danger is used for the more severe hazards, while warning is used for less severe hazards, and there will only be one signal word on the label. 
The hazard statement describes the nature of the hazards of a chemical. The precautionary statement describes recommended measures to be taken to minimize or prevent adverse effects resulting from exposure or improper storage or handling of a hazardous chemical. Pictograms are graphic symbols used to convey specific information about the hazards of a chemical. The responsible party information provides contact information that may be needed in an emergency. OSHA does not specify a label format or size, saying only that the product identifier, pictogram, signal word, and hazard statement should be located together in the same field of view. And back to Mishka. All right, thank you, Rachel. So let's take a look at what's required for in-house labels. There are a few options for in-house labeling um, as shown on the slide. You can follow the labeling requirements for shipped containers minus the responsible party contact information. We showed you those shipped container labeling elements on that last slide. Alternately, the in-house label can be just the product identifier and words, pictures, or symbols that convey the general hazard information regarding the physical and health hazards of the hazardous chemical. OSHA also allows employers to use the HMIS-3 and the NFPA systems for in-house labeling if they are used in accordance with their respective guidelines and so long as it doesn't cast doubt or contradict the validity of the label information. Um, all workplace HASCOM labels must include the product identifier and general information regarding all of the hazards of the chemicals, even when using the NFPA or HMIS system. In some cases, all hazards are not addressed by a particular rating system, for example, chronic health hazards, and therefore hazards, are not, hazards not addressed must be communicated by words, pictures, symbols, or a combination thereof, uh, in addition to the NFPA or HMIS rating system. If you choose to use an in-house system, you must ensure that your training program instructs employees on how to use and understand the alternative labeling systems. And while employers are not required under HASCOM to relabel already labeled containers, there are several situations in which relabeling may be needed. Uh, for example, if the received quantity of a chemical is broken down into smaller containers, employers need to label additional containers unless the smaller containers are for immediate use. And we'll actually talk about that on the next slide. Relabeling may be needed if labels that fall off or become unreadable must be replaced. And also you may need to relabel, uh, need, relabeling may be needed for incoming containers when you adhere to a company-wide uniform labeling system. So here are a couple common questions that we get regarding containers. For one, do we have to label secondary containers? And the answer here is that depends. You're not required to label portable containers if they are intended only for the immediate use of the employee who performs the transfer. Problems, are, however, arise when the shift ends and there is material left in the portable container or if another employee needs to use the container or the substance. Before the chemical can be passed along to another employee or another shift, the container must be properly labeled. Another question that we commonly get, do quality control samples have to be labeled? answer here is yes. Quality control samples taken in a plant must be labeled unless the person taking the sample is also going to be the only person performing the analysis. Workplace labels or other forms of warning must be legible in English and prominently displayed on the container or readily available in the work area throughout each work shift. If you have employees who speak other languages, you may add the information in their language to the material presented as long as that information is presented in English as well. Labels must be legible without the use the use of any aid except corrective lenses if the person you know reading the label normally has to wear glasses. And then let's talk a bit about the upcoming HASCOM final rule. 
So if you fall under the HASCOM standard at 1910-1200, be aware that OSHA proposed changes throughout. The proposal aligns with the standard for revision seven of the globally harmonized system or GHS, um, and it aims to clarify requirements and reduce costs. Specifically, if finalized, the proposal would make the changes listed on the slide. OSHA wants to add definitions for terms like bulk shipment, combustible dust, immediate outer package, released for shipment, and other terms. The proposal adds some new hazard classes and categories, as well as hazard classification requirements for chemicals sold together with the intention of being mixed. It addresses the labeling of small containers, shipments in tanker trucks or rail cars, and packages released for shipment that are awaiting future distribution. Required content for the safety data sheet would be revised and concentration ranges could be claimed trade secret. So if the final, if the rule is finalized, while the proposal mainly impacts chemical manufacturers, importers, and distributors, employers would need to maintain any updated data sheets received and train employees in new chemical hazards that arrive at work. Um, OSHA hopes to finalize this rule in December of this year. And we'd imagine some changes may take effect immediately with the final rule, but others may have delayed uh, compliance dates. Just keep in mind that once effective, those changes are going to be fair game for the OSHA inspectors. Um, Rachel? Okay, thank you. So in addition to the federal HASCOM standard, many states and territories have been approved by OSHA to operate their own safety and health programs. And these state plan states must have a standard that are at least as effective as OSHA's rules, but they may have additional requirements that could involve hazard communication. Many of these states do adopt federal OSHA rules as is, but this is not always the case. So in any case, it's really a good idea to check your state requirements. The following states have HASCOM requirements that may impact you. Alaska, California, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, Oregon, and Tennessee. It's also noteworthy that Massachusetts just became a state plan state for state and local public sector employers in the state. And beyond this, any state could have right to know laws and regulations that are more stringent. That brings us to the end of our presentation for today. We've covered a lot of ground and we hope we've clarified the requirements under HASCOM. Mishka, are we ready for questions? Actually, before we move on to questions, I want to first address one that came in about our new chemical management service. The service provides support and guidance from improving the accuracy of your chemical inventory to maintaining your SDS library, ensuring proper labeling, and so much more. So uh, again, you know, if you'd like to learn more information on the JJ Keller Chemical Management Service, let us know by selecting your interests on the poll. And as a thank you, we will send you a copy of our compliance brief on the top seven HASCOM violations. All right. And thank you everyone for providing your results on the poll. Um, and as a reminder, before we begin our Q&A session here, um, we'll provide general guidance to your questions. Because we may have limited information, however, please consider your unique workplace circumstances while applying our guidance and determine its applicability. Um, and now, Rachel, I think we are ready for questions. OK. Well, thank you so much to you both. Before we start the Q&A, we want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it does help us improve our future webcast. And we've received quite a bit of questions, or quite a lot of questions. Uh, so thank you to everyone. Um, I guess the first one is, is annual training required for uh, specifically for hydrogen sulfide? Um, there's not a regulation that's specific to hydrogen sulfide. 
Um, however, under HASCOM, HASCOM does not require annual training, but certainly it's a best practice in the industry. So you may want to consider doing annual training, but it is not officially required. Our next question, are you required to list um, uh, the amount of each substance on the inventory? No, you're not required to do that under HASCOM. Our next question, what about electronically available SDS inventory in healthcare? Is this electronic document service suffice or sufficient? Uh, and is it also required to have a paper inventory copy in each department for specific products stored there? Um, OSHA does allow you to store them electronically as long as they're, you know, as long as employees can access that them electronically in their work area when they would need them, you certainly can have um, a paper inventory as well, but electronic um, storage is, will suffice as well. Uh, another question, I know there's, there's some confusion sometimes over these terms, but can you have material safety data sheets or should they read safety data sheets? Um, you know, sometimes people do still have material safety data sheets, the MSDS. Um, OSHA does say that if that is the last, you know, if that's what you received the last time you received that a product, a shipment of that product and you received an MSDS with that, which would have been probably a number of years ago. But if that's the last um, copy received that you are in compliance. However, if you do get an SDS for that particular product, um, then you would retain that instead. But an MSDS is all right if that is the last um, document you received with the, that product. Uh, this question is for Mishka. How often should we update our uh, chemical inventory? So OSHA doesn't specify a time period for updating your inventory. Uh, if you have only a few hazardous chemicals that stay relatively the same, an annual update may be enough. Um, if you have a lot of chemicals that change frequently, you may need to consider updating more often, you know, such as like a, on a quarterly basis. So Rachel, is a, a table of contents required in each SDS binder? Is there a required method for storing the SDS in the binder, you know, alphabetically or by vendor name? Sure, that's a great question. Um, OSHA does not specify how you need to maintain that binder. So that is really up to you. You don't need a table of contents and you know, whatever is easiest for you will work out as long as all those SDSs are available. Our next question, are, are SDSs required to be in multiple languages? Um, officially, OSHA requires them to be in English, but certainly if you have employees um, who use other languages and that would be more helpful to them, you certainly can have them translated, but you are only required to have them in English. So our, our next question, if I have uh, e-binders for SDSs, do I also need a chemical inventory list? Um, OSHA does require you to have those to be two separate things. Um, the binders or electronic copies um, or in the chemical list would be a separate thing. So that would be a list of all the chemicals. So yes, you do need both of those things. Uh, we did have a, a, a question, a couple of questions about this, Mishka. Is there a minimum number of employees for the written program requirement to kick in? Um, so if you have a the rule is if you have one employee exposed to one hazardous chemical, you must have a written program. Uh, someone is also asking, what about electronically available SDS inventory only and no paper copies? Yes, that's that is acceptable. You can either have that electronically or or a hard copy either way. So just in, to add to that, Rachel. Oh, I'm sorry, sure. Alan. Just no, to go add ahead. To that, no, go ahead. It, it can be, um, you know, as we had covered, as long as um, there's a backup system. If it's only electronic, there should be a backup uh, system as well. You know that if the electronic system fails, that you know the employees would be able to still access the the the, the data sheets, and the employees. I think they need to also be trained on how to use that system appropriately. And, and can you give examples of backup access to SDS other than hard copy? Um, a good place to look for that actually is OSHA has, um, has a directive for its um, 
compliance officers, it's inspectors, and that directive is called CPL 0202079. And that does provide some examples of um, what you can use as backup access. So that's a good place to look. That's CPL 0202079. This is an interesting question that just came in. Um, our, our company is trying to be more eco-friendly with our paper use and the operation is very large and we print out a lot of paper for SDSs. We want to create a QR code system to pull up an SDS in place of a folder. Is, is that allowed? Hmm. Can you just repeat that, please? Think about so that this one. company wants to be more eco-friendly and the operation is very large. So instead of printing out a lot of paper for SDSs, they want to create a QR code system to pull up an SDS in place of a folder. Okay, so then basically it would be available electronically. Um, I think I would say that would be as long as it's, you know, if everyone has access to that code, who would need it? And then that would jump to an electronic copy that would be acceptable. That's the first time that's interesting, Rachel. That's the first time I've seen that. But I was thinking the same thing that just equals electronic, just more so that, um, so I don't know, I guess they would have to think about things like, does everybody have access to a cell phone or, you know, some kind of device to access those QR codes? I think that would be pertinent to think about, too, yeah. you know? Yes, that's a great point. So our next question, do you need to have a program when you have less than 10 employees? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, you do. Um, there's an, a minimum. I, I, as I had mentioned earlier, if you have, you know, just one employee, it's the, it's that rule that, I, you know, uh, in the EH, EHS world, we keep repeating, if you have that one employee exposed to one hazardous chemical, you still need to have that written program. But this was also an interesting question that came in recently. Does the fire department require you to have paper copies to be readily accessible in case of an emergency? Hmm. That's a good question. I, um, I suppose you honestly would have to check with your local fire department, but as far as OSHA is concerned, if there's a medical emergency, you would want to have a hard copy readily accessible. And that could be, you know, could mean that you are able to print it out quickly. That's, I mean, that's acceptable as well. But for the fire department itself, that might be something you would, you would have to check locally about that. And, and Rachel, how long do we, do people have to retain an SDS? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's another OSHA reg that kind of um, covers that um, under 1910.1020, which is the access to employee exposure and medical records. That reg requires you to keep a record that identifies the substances that were used in your facility, where they were used and when they were used, and you would need to retain that record for at least 30 years. So the SDS could be part of that record, um, but as long as you have that, some kind of record um, of what it was, where and when it was used, you know, the SDS could be part of that, doesn't have to be as long as you have that record. Um, even if you no longer use a chemical, you must maintain some record of its use for at least 30 years. So one of our next questions, uh, is online training acceptable for employees? Yes, that is acceptable. Um, there will, of course, have to be some um, workplace specific training because they'll need to know what chemicals they are exposed to in your workplace and know the hazards of those. But certainly you can also do online training as well. Speaking of technology, someone asked, wouldn't an SDS app that lists chemical inventory suffice as a backup to the hard copy? Hmm. I'll have to think about that one. Okay. So someone is asking how to access CPL 0202079. Okay. Um, that, sh that is available on OSHA's website. And I believe, honestly, if you just type in that CPL, mm -hmm. then it's 02-02- I should have said that, 079. So put the dashes between the twos. Okay. And that should pull that up for you. Um, Rachel, what's the best way to prepare chemical inventory? 
Um, I would say a best practice is to kind of go through that department by department search for chemicals, um, include cleaning supplies, you know, maybe bathroom and window cleaners, grounds maintenance chemicals like weed killers, fertilizers. Think about vendor samples that might be being used on a trial basis. Um, think chemicals that are used in daily operations like fuels or paints and just be sure to check in all cabinets or closets and any other storage areas. Um, and also keep in mind that HASCOM covers chemicals in all physical forms. So, um, you know, whether they're contained or not. So liquids, solids, gases, vapors, fumes, and mists. And, you know, for example, consider whether there are welding fumes or dusts or maybe exhaust in the facility as well. Um, and to add to that, Rachel, uh, just very quickly, another really good thing is, uh, another really useful thing is looking at your purchase records. That always helps. And two, just asking your employees what they use and, and where it's stored is a good, you know, in addition to everything Rachel mentioned, those two are, are really good um, starts to creating that inventory. So we got a question, where in the standard does it require you to identify the location and use for specific hazardous chemicals? Um, I don't know if there's a specific place in the standard that would re that um, requires that. Um, let me think about. Um, trying to think about which section that is here. I will have to come back to that one in a minute. Okay, that's fine. Where is the best location to have a has waste accumulation area, and should we be separating universal waste from has waste? Um, so I can answer this one, Alan. So okay. you definitely want to separate your hazardous waste from your universal waste. Um, different topic, uh, really, but certainly those two waste streams need to be separated. And they actually, under the CFR, have separate regulations for hazardous waste. If you're, if you actually generate hazardous waste, you're a hazardous waste generator, and you have a whole slew of um, compliance requirements. The requirements are a little less strict for universal waste, but there are, you know, you have to separate them. You actually separate even within your universal waste if you have fluorescent bulbs versus batteries and they all get um, labeled separately. So certainly you should be separating those waste streams, but if you are a waste generator, you have a, a number of other um, uh, compliances that you have to observe under your CFR. We did get a question um perhaps similar, are there requirements under HASCOM for storage rooms? No, there's nothing specifically for storage rooms under HASCOM. Um, and I was going we, back, oh, oh, oh go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna go back to the, the question about, um, you know, where and when the chemicals were used. I was thinking HASCOM, but that one, that question, um, that was that other regulation, um, 1910, um, 1910.20, and that's in paragraph D that talks about, um, you know, when and where your chemicals were used in your facility and for how long. So that is at 1910.20, paragraph D. Okay. Someone did ask, I don't know if this is under HASCOM, but how many times of the year are you required to have a company come and take away your wasted or your chemical waste or wasted chemicals? It doesn't fall under HASCOM. I, I was going to say that um, <laughs> these these topics are actually under RICRA, Resource Conservation and okay. Recovery Act. And so a different topic to this, but for the uh, viewers asking about these waste questions, you're going to want to reference a 40 CFR part 260 and 261. Those are going to be your, um, those ones are going to be your indicators there for for your has waste questions. Well, as we wrap up, do you do you all have any closing thoughts? No, I just want to say thank you for everyone to joining us for joining us, and thanks for all the great questions as well. Yeah, I thought very good questions. A lot of things you you, you see in practice, so very good questions. I thought. We, we did get one, I think, one final question here. Can you explain how GHS labeling requirements relate to the HASCOM standard? Um, I, well, 
has come has, or OSHA has adopted that um, the GHS standard, I think in I believe 2012 was when they made changes to the labeling and that is how it relates. That's a, the GHS is a, um, an international standard and OSHA adopted that in 2012. So that is how that relates. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's, that was GHS version three, revision or version three, and this upcoming yes, one is yes. possibly to revision or version seven. Correct. Okay. Thought I had that right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, unfortunately, the, the, we're out of time, and that uh, ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank our awesome presenters. Mishka Benz, Rachel Krupsack, the entire team from our sponsor, J.J. Keller, and of course, all of our listeners. Thank you and have a safe day.